Okay, so it is January 12th, it's 2014, and uh, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm a little excited this morning. So <laughs> let me tell you what our message is, then tell you why I missed part of worship and all of that. Our message is gutter real estate with a starry view. That's our message today. I was back there studying and I thought I had a message and it came to me at IHOP very late sitting around with Baj and Natalie and Nick and Sasha and Sam and uh, and I do I've got that message but I might add one to it and I can do that so uh, while I was back there the Lord began to minister to me Curtis walked through and I caught a tear and uh, as I started thinking on the subject uh, I didn't know y'all were out here worshiping the neat thing about Jesus is he can be meeting with me in there and be meeting with y'all out here. Amen. Uh, well, let's do this. You turn to the first chapter of John. I'll turn with you. And uh, we will muscle through this, okay? Y'all love the Lord? It's going to be a good year. Wasn't worship amazing? Oh, man, if you could bottle that, it's what the nations need. We're going to do more and more and more. And I don't want to scare you, but we're going to get more and more unrestrained, more and more undignified. We're going to get more and more off the chain. We're going to go for it in an amazing way. And if religious people don't like it, then it's okay that they leave. But we're believing... That there's salvation even for the religious people. And that they'll fall in love with God's spirit. Amen. So. What happened July 4th, 1776? Oh, come on, man. This was Independence Day. And it started with a declaration of independence. Among all the rights that we could talk about today. So many could come to mind. You might think about those unalienable rights you might think about the pursuit of happiness or liberty or life and certainly thomas jefferson wrote about them eloquently it formed the basis for a nation it formed the basis for what we're enjoying now maybe those of you that spent a little bit of time on the wrong side of the popo might think of another kind of rights fifth amendment the right to remain silent the sixth amendment the right to be represented by counsel. If you cannot afford counsel, what do they do for you? Those are called Miranda rights. Because June 13, 1966, a guy with the last name Miranda was arrested and he confessed to his crime. And he didn't know he had the right to not confess. He didn't know he, he had the right to, to be represented by an attorney. So the U.S. Supreme Court said you have to inform people of these rights. Church, the living God has given us certain rights. And we need to be informed about them. When you don't know what is yours, then how can you know you have it? You might be on a luxury cruise liner with a full paid ticket, but you're eating crackers in the basement because you don't know the buffet upstairs is yours. There are certain things that belong to us. And I told you in 1776... There was a declaration to the world. We will not be denied these things. In 1966, there was a declaration to all enforcement officers. This is a prerequisite for an arrest. If you don't do this, you can't arrest somebody so that everybody who might be found guilty would know their rights beforehand. But in the year 85, in the very first century, there was another right declared to us. In the book of John, in the first chapter, in the 12th verse, yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The greatest right you and I have is the right to become something other than what we have been. You might be sitting here today a convicted sex offender. You could be sitting here today a murderer or an adulterer. You could be sitting here today guilty of forsaking the grace of God your entire life. But we have the right to become children of God. And that's no small thing. People fight for the right to become a citizen of the United States. 
When you leave this country and you go into Mexico, there is no line at the border. When you're on the other side of the border coming back, it might take you hours to get in. Because people want the right to become a U.S. citizen. How much greater is the right to become a child of God? You cannot be denied this right, but you can give it up. Nobody can keep you from this right, but you can choose not to become it. Oh, saints, the most important thing that we could do, how do you become a child of God? Yet to all those who received Him, to those who believed in His name, His name are not the letters J-E-S-U-S, they're not the letters in Greek, and they're not the letters in Hebrew. His name is His character. His authority, his reputation, his name was his function on the earth. And when you receive him as your Messiah, your rabbi, and you follow in his footsteps, you become something altogether different than what you've been. And anyone, anyone who will follow the Messiah can become something other than what they were. Come on church, somebody say amen. If you understood what I was talking about, your soul would be jumping inside of you. If you began to receive of heaven what is beating in the heart of this pastor, something inside you would begin to quiver because I was damned and now I've been set free. I've been saved from wickedness that enslaved me. We have the right to become children of God. Now, you know every right had a precedent somewhere. I mean, we don't have a court case without citing a previous court case. God has not kept his movements a secret. In fact, he takes great delight in announcing ahead of time what he's going to do. Turn with me to Isaiah. Say there when you're in the 56th chapter. In Isaiah 56, we're in the year 720 B.C., roughly 800 years before John wrote what he wrote. And here is verse 1. This is what Yahweh says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand. Can you imagine anticipating it, looking forward to it, waiting for the day you would have access to it? And my righteousness will soon be revealed. There was a day when men were on the other side of a curtain and they were waiting to see something that you enjoy now. Oh, in the name of Jesus, don't take it for granted. What happens to us when we worship in here, when heaven descends upon you, it's no small thing when you can feel the heavenly assembly around you. You have been included in their number because you have followed the Messiah. That is no small thing. What was it like to be an alien and a foreigner to the things of God? To be an alien and a foreigner, to be in the room but don't know the language. To be at the party and not understand the customs. Oh man, I've been in all of those places. I know what it's like to be sitting in a place... And everybody's talking and you don't understand the words coming out of their mouth. It's depressing. It's sad. Hopelessness and despair can fill you. I'll never learn the language. The first year for a missionary in another country is always the hardest. I was once like that to the things of God. And he's included me in his conversation. He's let me in on his heavenly counsel. What was once far off is now at hand. It's enveloped me. And I can't take that for granted. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this. The man who holds it fast. Who keeps the Sabbaths without desecrating it. And keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. 
and let not any unit complain. I am only a dry tree. Oh, think on these things for a minute, saints. Can you imagine if President Obama stood up today, I should probably add with the support of the Congress, and he announced any citizen from any country anywhere in the world can come here now, this moment. If you get here this week, you'll have full citizenship. You'll have full rights. You'll be fully vested immediately. What would our borders look like? Oh, for many of you, it's a frightening proposition. But in the kingdom of heaven, there's always enough to go around. He's all sufficient. He's all powerful. He's altogether lovely. And he never runs out of goodness. The kingdom has no borders. And as many as will receive him, he'll receive them. Hallelujah! He said you could be a foreigner, but I'll let you in my house. You could be a eunuch, but you can bear fruit in me. So I'm going to ask you, saints, what can he not overcome? The only thing he doesn't overcome are those who will not receive his name. When we don't receive his name, we might know his name. We might even speak his name. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It's when we walk in the power of his name that we're citizens of his kingdom. I want to know his name in the excellency of his power. I want it to course through my veins and guide my footsteps. How about you? Anybody out there want to be touched of the heavens? Oh, Jesus, he visited me in my office, and it's already made my year. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, Surely the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let not any unit complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who choose what please me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. He's not just willing to take the outcast. He will take you and seat you at a table with a seat that is better than those who were meant to inherit it. Talk about sneaking in the back door. It's sneaking in the back door and taking over the place, friends. It's not crashing a wedding. It's crashing the wedding and marrying the bride. I thought a single man might say hallelujah to that. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve Him and to love the name of the Lord and to worship Him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and all who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer. Come on, do you have joy? If you don't got joy, then you don't know where you're at or you're somewhere other than where you think you're at. Because the result of being brought from the outside to the inside is everlasting joy. If he didn't exclude me and he didn't exclude some of you, then why would we think he would exclude someone else? You have to be careful preaching these kind of messages. In our day, the universalists are beginning to rise up. Those perverters of grace. Doctrinal butchers. You must receive his name. You must walk in his name. If you love him, you will obey his commandments. If you have faith in him, that faith will produce in you obedience. It's the obedient that will be blessed. But anybody who wants to become obedient, he will give you the power to do it. Galatians 3.26 says we are all sons of God. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. How do you get there? You have to trust him. 
Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. How do you stay there? You've got to walk in His Spirit. You can trust Him, but if you don't trust Him enough to receive His divine substance into your life to guide you, then your trust gets shipwrecked on the rocks. It's important to be baptized in God's Holy Spirit. And anyone who says otherwise, visit them in 10 years and see how they're doing. In 1 John, the third chapter and first verse, there is a verse that is so good, that is so amazing. We should read it and read it and read it. How great is the love the Father has What's that word? Oh, man, have you ever heard of somebody who lives a lavish life? It's a life of excess. It's a life that knows no limits. It's a life of decadence. He has loved you without limit. He has loved you to the point of excess. He has loved you in a decadent way. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. Look at your neighbor and say, He lavished it on me. He lavished it on me. You got self-esteem problems. You need to lather up some love. You worried that you've never been right? Lather up some love. You feel beat on by your brothers? Lather up some love. Because he has lavished it upon you. And if he's for me, who can be against me? If he's for me, who can be against me? We just need to get lavished upon. Oh, come on, man. You're not happy? You're not living a lavish life. Go lather up some love. I'm not going to explain that, but there is some imagery there I'm trying to get you to get. When you want something, I am going to explain it. When you want something clean, you put the purity of water on you. You take an outside object that is itself clean and you rub it on you. And the more you rub, the more it lathers. He has lavished the purity of his love upon you and he has poured the purity of his word on you to excess he has given us everything that is anything so much so that paul says all things are yours how about second corinthians 5 and we will start to work our way towards the point Two of you were there. Come on now. Help a pastor out. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you right now, I think I love Jesus more than you do. I'm going to brag a little bit. I think I love him more than you. Who loves Jesus as much as I do? Come on, who loves Jesus as much as I do? You might be right. Those who sin much love much. I used to play that game with my pastor. I don't know who won. It's like Epimenendez paradox there. 2 Corinthians 5. Look at verse 14. For Christ's love compels us. Has a lavish love on you? Then it compels you. Because we are convinced that the one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Why do you live? For him who died for them and was raised again. What is the purpose of your existence now? The purpose is to glorify him who has given you new life. Him who died for you. That's the purpose. That's why I'm here. I'm not here to make money. I'm not here for fine clothes. I am here for my king. When you settle that issue, your life becomes content with the things that you have. And godliness with contentment is great gain. You stop worrying about what you don't have. 
You stop fearing what you might lose and you say, I'm only here for Him. Come on, saints, we amen it. We amen it, but we need to get down in it. Do you have contentment with godliness? Because if you got contentment with godliness, then something begins to happen. You start to get free. You start to say, I can do it. I can do it in the name of Jesus. But, but it costs so much, so what? All I have and more belongs to Him. Amen. You stop thinking about what it will cost to do it and you start thinking about what the cost is if you don't do it. Come on, we need to get off of our religious chains, friends. They're dying. And we're swimming in the lavishness of His love. Oh, Jesus. So from now on, come on, say from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in that way. Can I tell you, I'm in the beginning stages of a total deliverance from a critical eye. <laughs> there you go, brother. Hit me that way, too. I got a bad habit. It's, it's the downside to a strength. I was once asked in an interview, what is your greatest strength? I said, I am aggressive. We talked about that for about an hour. And he says, what is your greatest weakness? I looked at him without hesitation and said, I am aggressive. See, the thing is, when you walk into a room and you can see everything that's wrong with the room that can lead you into a life of pessimism or it can simply show you where there's room for growth and hope and where God makes up the difference. I've had a habit of noticing everything that was wrong and in recent times had a hard time considering what God wants to do with it. It's good that I'm the only one in the room that has been that way. I can pick the ones who will fall with 97% accuracy. The problem is it's those 3% who will succeed that only God knows. Let that sink in for a minute. If you expect the worst in people, you will never be disappointed. Betting against people is always a safe bet. But all it does is make you a successful cynic. Do you want to live your life as the most accurate cynic that ever lived? Is that how you want to be remembered? I was pretty sure he had let me down, so I didn't trust him. And I was right. I was pretty sure they would fail me, so I didn't trust them. And I was right. I was pretty sure they were like all of the others, so I excluded myself from them. And I was right. And all of your rightness, what would your life look like? See, the problem with this kind of exclusion is you stand all by yourself because you can't exclude yourself from self. But don't lie to me. You look in those high-powered mirrors with all of those spotlights because you would like to. You try to repaint your image every day. You look into that mirror, get your new haircuts, put on your designer clothes, and go face the world after prepping for it. We fundamentally don't like who we are, and we like everybody else less. Come on, am I telling the truth? But the living God can change all of that. I want to pull back the veil this morning. And I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to stand up here without makeup. I never wore designer clothes. You know what the idea of luxury for me is? A good pair of work boots. Man, they're indispensable. I had a long discussion the other day that I'm not going to get into now about proper foot care and why somebody was pedicuring. <laughs> Let's talk about cynicism instead. Cynicism may masquerade as wisdom, but it is really just faithlessness used to make our rejection of people that may hurt us more palatable. 
Think on that for a minute. It may indeed seem wisdom to say, I don't know if you can trust them, but it may also simply be an excuse to be completely faithless towards your God and exclude yourself from them. How long can you live in reserve? How long can you stand to be right about the whole human race and not be a part of it? Is it possible that you'll get hurt? Of course. Might even get crucified. But what if you're in the 3% that finds life? You know, those statistics are overwhelming, and I completely made those up. But if you ever look at a statistic on a prophylactic, they seem foolproof. 99.8% is great, isn't it? Unless you're in the 0.2%. And then it's 100% ineffective. A hundred percent for you. You might be able to say, Nolan's like all of the others. He just hurt me. He just walked on me. He just abused my trust. And 97% of the time, you'd be right. But if Nolan's not in that 97%, you are a hundred percent wrong. What if you can't pick the ones that are right? What if you can with reasonable accuracy declare all wrong because you're choosing from a pool that is all wrong? But you can't know which one is going to become a son of God. Oh man, that's got to change our perspective, doesn't it? We look with skepticism upon people because they deserve it. But so do we. And the king has given us a right. A right to become something more than we are. Paul once looked upon Jesus from a worldly point of view. But in the latter years of his ministry, he said, I have learned not to look upon anyone in that way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. The Church of England vomited out John and Charles Wesley. John and Charles Wesley laid the groundwork for the holiness movement, for Pentecostalism around the world. Open air street preaching around the world owes its existence to men like that and the church of their day did not want them. They formed the group called the Methodist. And then the group called the Methodist rejected William Booth who formed the Salvation Army. Of course, the Church of England rejected him as well. You may not have known even D.L. Moody said William Booth was dangerous to the local church. Of course, William Booth, by the time he died, had put Christians in 58 countries. In April of 1914, 300 outcast ministers men with no ordination, men who had been denounced by their local denominations for speaking in other tongues, got together and formed the Assemblies of God. Today, there are more than 300,000 of those pastors, and most are guilty of the same sin that caused them to form their denomination. What is it about us that we have such a critical eye and are so sure what God can't do with someone. We strive for conformity unless it's us that doesn't conform. And then we want grace and mercy. Another way to say it is we hate everyone else's sin and we love our own. I began thinking about this in my office and I asked a question that was not developed at the IHOP table what is now known as the Council of the IHOP. We weren't in IHOP. Correction, that's revisionist history. It was Denny's, where I got the rarest T-bone I've ever eaten, and it was enough to make me consider a life as a vegan. Even my corn was bleeding. When your mashed potatoes are pink, you might want a new plate. How would we have viewed Abraham. Is that a fair question 
Today we say Abraham is the father of our faith. Judah, grab me some water, would you, or toss me that one? Here you go. That's my son Judah. I love him. Yeah, if you can clap for him. He might flex for you. He's turning red because he knew it was coming. That one over there belongs to me too. He's the crafty one. He'll be the lawyer in the family or the spirit-filled preacher. We're waiting to see the results of our youth ministry. How would we have viewed Abraham? It's a fair question. Well, he was the son of an idolater. Joshua 24 says that. You can find that in the second verse. Terah worshipped false gods. So what did Abraham's genealogy look like? Some Bible scholars say, oh, he's the tenth from Noah. There's always something special about the tenth, they say, and they might be right. I doubt very seriously that Abraham was really conscious that he was the tenth from Noah. I bet all he could see was his daddy's idols. Can any of you trace your lineage back ten generations? How could you know if it was true? I mean, I know what people say. But there have been an awful lot of rings bought after the baby came, huh? People don't usually jump up and announce their sin. This man could trace his lineage to Noah, but his own daddy was an idolater. In Genesis 20, Abraham protected himself. That seems like a reasonable thing to do, huh? It's innately human. Except the way he protected himself was he lied. He said, you know, Ahimelech, she's my sister. Kind of a little half-truth. Of course, Ahimelech sees Sarai and says, she's, she's nice. And he brought her into his royal harem. Now, how are you thinking about Abraham? Let's take him out of the Bible for a minute and make him your next-door neighbor. You find out tomorrow your next-door neighbor thought that his life possibly could be threatened. So he put his wife in the bed of another man. What do you think about it? You can tell the truth. It was a lady answered first, and that makes all the sense in the world. One politely said, not good. Another said, coward. I was thinking deviant. Pervert. I was thinking harsher terms. But then that's my particular problem, isn't it? Between Genesis 12 and 21, Abraham claimed to have met with God. You ever met somebody who said they met with God? Bill Clinton once said, The problem with you people saying you hear from God is none of us know which one of you are lying. David Koresh said he met with God. Fruit Loop every now and then come out of California looking for a spaceship that thinks he met with God. How would you say you know when somebody met with God? Well, if what they say comes to pass, that's helpful. The problem is, is Abraham was 75 years old in Genesis 12. And he said he met with God and God said, I'm going to make you the father of nations. And by the time we're in Genesis 20, he's 99 years old. And he doesn't even have a son from his wife. So during those 24 years, what would you have thought of Abraham? Is that not a fair question? We've got a man who was born in an idolatrous household. A man who put his wife in somebody else's bed to protect himself. And for 24 years, been saying he met with God, but the things he said were not yet happened. In Genesis 16, we got a whole nother little problem. It wouldn't be so much a problem today. Our society's headed this way. Nobody even gets married anymore. Our divorce, divorce rate's going down. Did you know 73% of the nation's African-American community is now born to a single parent family? 73%. 
Did you know that among Caucasian women now who are under 40 years old, baby-bearing ages, we're approaching 40% are born to single mothers? See, it's not an issue of the color of our skin. It's an issue of our faithfulness. Is that scary to you? Because in Genesis 16, what we begin to see with Abraham is he got a little impatient. You know, the thing is, God, you told me I was going to have a child. And I ran around telling everybody I was going to have a child. And I left my house and my business and all of those things. And now I'm kind of gallivanting around the desert saying God told me I'd have a child. And I don't have a child. And my wife thinks I should sleep with Hagar. And it, it you know, doesn't seem like all that displeasurable of an idea. What do you think of Abraham? Are you not right to say faithless, wicked? Does the word pervert not come to mind to you? It does to me. I'm thinking of a woman named Bobbit, you know? I mean, oh, y'all not getting real in the house. Y'all, y'all, y'all sitting in here all religious and neat. Tell the truth. If your neighbor did these things, what would you think? Take it out of the Bible for a minute. Let's put it in cell block C for a minute. You would not be thinking good things. You've been taught about Abraham, rightly so, that 2,000 years before Jesus, he did good things and God loved him. And we're going to look at that. You've been taught 2,000 years since Jesus, Dad. And we got 4,000 years of filter on Abraham. But what if you were walking around with him? Don't get me started on how you would think about Jesus. Guy claims that he's God. Are you kidding me? He wants us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Is that not insane? The most godly people we know, he calls vipers and sons of the devil. Who does this guy think he is? And did you hear how he was born? Didn't see a wedding ring on Mary when that baby started to show. Are you understanding now? Apparently... God is willing to have some short-term disgrace for some long-term gain. What would we have thought of Abraham? Now, how about Flake? Crazy. Bad character. Let me ask you, how did God see him? What does James 2.23 say? Put that one on the screen, Susan. This would be the book of Yaakov, the second chapter in the 23rd verse. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. God's friend. What would you have called him? See, we know how the story finished. See, the problem with predicting the 97% and the 3% is the story hasn't finished. There is what you are today and there's what you can become. There is what your loved one is today and we don't have to deny it. We don't have to sugarcoat it. We don't have to pretend it's not true. We just cannot denounce the divine right to become something more. We can become sons of God. Oh, come on. This is the cure for pessimism, friends. Whatever the situation is today, it can change through belief in His name. You know, this is what got me crying today, and I don't know for sure why. I'm just going to tell you when God visits, don't argue with Him. You won't win. It's reading about a guy named Oscar Wilde. If you know who Oscar Wilde is, I would be surprised. In the late 1800s, he was a playwright and a poet. He was born in Dublin, Ireland, and he was imprisoned in London. <coughs> this generation probably only knows one of the characters that he wrote about, and that's Dorian Gray. Dorian Gray was the wealthy man who had a painting and the painting aged. And as long as he never looked at the painting, he never aged. Anybody in here tracking with me? Oscar Wilde 
was a brilliant man, but he spent most of his life seeking pleasure. In his day, the philosophy of aestheticism was popular. And he sought out pleasure wherever he could find it, and he exalted art as kind of the ultimate truth. And in his hubris, he sued a woman for printing things about him that was, he said, liable. Not true. And in the course of the trial, it was revealed that the only reason that he sued was he was jealous that the woman he was suing was sleeping with the same man that he was. Nothing new under the sun. He was sentenced to two years of hard labor in London's prisons. He died at only 46 years old. I read something that he wrote, and it brought me to tears because he came so close. Oscar Wilde wrote in his diary, We're all living in a gutter, but some of us are looking or staring at the stars. See, he recognized that he was in a putrid life, and he was longing, looking for something else. This is where most of America gets from time to time. Living in a gutter, but looking at the stars. We know what is right. We kind of want what is right as long as it doesn't cost us too much. And it reminded me of Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis 15. Why was Abraham God's friend? Say there when you were there. When I say I have no idea when I began preaching, I am not lying. So y'all help me back there. In Genesis 15, we find out about gutter real estate with a starry view. In 15, look at verse 5. Oh, let's look at verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. But a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed Yahweh. And it was credited to him as righteousness. This brings me to a point. What on earth is the difference between Oscar Wilde, who is writing in his own diary and says, I live in a gutter, but I'm looking at the stars. And Abraham, who is living between the promise and its fulfillment, the son of an idolater, and a man you could make the charge was guilty of perversion. And him looking at the stars. They were both standing in disobedience. And both staring at the same starscape. But one simply looked and yearned. And the other took aim. And went after it. Oh, church is not enough to know what is right. So, well, I can't get there anyway. None of us can. But when you yearn after what is right, when you strive for it, when you set aim on it, and you set out to walk knowing that you're going to fail, but you won't quit, He credits you with righteousness. You want to know what the difference between the two men was? One ended up a friend of God, and the other ended up his enemy. And God desired to make friends with them both. One left behind a legacy of a few plays that nobody remembers in 150 years. The other, 4,000 years later, has reshaped the globe with his faith. What is the legacy of our life? We might be staring at the same problem and the same solution, but what are we doing about it? Some just write in their diary and continue in their sin. Others don't let their sins stop them from the relentless pursuit of the holy and they trust God 
to give them strength over it. Let me ask you, saints, we're on the 12th day of the year. What has your year already been like? Did you have grand hopes that this year you would be spiritually strong? That this year you would be faithful? That this year you would take aim and you would walk after it? What's the difference between Oscar Wilde and Abraham? Abraham took a step towards the promise every day of his life. Are you Oscar Wilde? Are you Abraham? Do you just talk about it? Write about it? Feel remorse over it? Are you actually pursuing it? Seems like such a small uh, small difference. One looks and the other aims. Like almost no difference at all. Except one ends up a friend of God and the other an enemy of God. Do you really think that we will be different? I don't. Turn with me to Hosea. Hosea is one of those books that I read, and I should never admit this, but I love you enough to tell you the truth. When I read it, I'm kind of like, Lord, this one, I know it's inspired. I know it's you. I know, I know, I know, I know. And uh, I read it because it's on the Bible plan, Lord. Lord, I read it because I feel like I'm a pastor, and, and, you know, I, I should read it. Lord... Why? I mean, it's such a hard book. Of course, it's hard because it's me. It's you. It's everybody you ever read. It's the 97%. Looking at the stars. Hosea 1, look at verse 8. After she had weaned, and who is she? Oh, the prostitute wife. After she had weaned Loruma, Gomer had another son. And the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Could there be a more difficult... Listen, we read that and it's a line. How long did it take me to read it? Anybody? Seconds. Somebody lived with that name their entire life. Their names are memorialized in the scripture forever. It takes us seconds to read it, but it was their lives. He said to a people that is his people, you are not my people and I'm not your God. Why? Because they could see the stars, but they were not aiming for them. They were not striving in righteousness. Look at the ever so loving reminder of our God. Yet the Israelites will be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. They will be called sons of the living God. At the very same time God is divorcing them, God is also pledging to remarry them. At the same time He's saying... When you live like this, it's like you're not mine and I'm not yours. It's utter unfaithfulness. He's also saying, I will not leave you this way. Whether you look down at the sand or up at the stars, you have a destiny. And it's to be changed into my likeness. So in the 11th verse, he prophesies about Jesus. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. There would be a day when somebody would show us how to not just see the stars, but take aim at the stars. When we would no longer have to live in a gutter staring at the stars. He actually spoke of the gutter standing on top of it as being in his father's presence. Because the substance of heaven had now made its way to the earth and would set up residence inside of you. Saints, there's no excuse in this situation. There's only hope in this situation. God is able 
to see the potential in a man even when it's obscured by the filth of the man. I need you to let that sink in for a minute. The living God does not overlook a man simply because he's filthy. All have sinned. All have fallen short. None are righteous. Their righteousness is but filthy rags, he said. But he can see the potential inside of a man that if he's willing to take aim after God, God will provide the strength. Oh, come on, church. Let it be more than just an amen. Let it get down in your soul. A lady in the 70s saying, He's my bridge over troubled waters. For that to be true, he'd have to be the bridge over the seas. We've created more trouble than can be bridged. But we serve a God that is that big. I say today, Lord, deliver me from a critical spirit. Help me receive what the Jews call the I.N. Tovah. I don't want to miss what the Lord is doing. Can you put Matthew 6, 22 on the screen? I don't want to miss it. We're going to read 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad... Your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So what on earth could that possibly mean? The Hebrews taught their children differently than we teach ours. The cultures of the world are not American. And the world does not hinge on America. We put ourselves in the center of the map in the same way that as individuals we think the world revolves around us. But it doesn't. And in India, when you want to teach a child what pride is, you show him a peacock. You show how such a beautiful animal has such a tragic flaw. His beauty hangs down from the tree branch and even a monkey can pull him off of his proud perch. When you want to teach a child what it is to be cunning, even subtle, you show him a wolf. In India, when you want to teach a child, you show them about the animals that are around them. Well, in Judaism, when you wanted to teach a child what it was to be generous, you said, your eye is good when it sees what God sees. Your eye is bad when it can't see what God sees. You begin to understand why Jesus says, I tell you, if you have eyes that see and ears that hear, this is what it is. If you understand or perceive what God is doing, this is what it looks like. The ayin tova, the good, or the eye good, ayin is eye and tova is good. The good eye is when you can look and see what God is doing. The reason the 24th verse talks about money and God is because the area this most conflicts with the human spirit. No one can serve two masters who hate the one and love the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's because we say we love God, but we don't honor Him with our money. Today, I'm not talking to you about money. Let's start with just goodwill. When you look at the person next to you in traffic that cuts you off, can you see what God sees about them? That their wife just cheated on them with their best friend. And they're broken. And they cut you off because they can't see straight through their tears. Can you see what God sees? You might be looking at someone that is faithless, Courageless, and you might say hopeless. But I ask you, wasn't Gideon like that? In the book of Judges, Gideon had taken a wine press, a structure for wine, and was threshing wheat in it. You know why? No one would look for a man threshing wheat in a wine press. 
It's like saying I had some body work to do. So I went inside my office building. You would never associate those two things. He was a coward. He was hiding. How would you have judged him? If you were standing next to Gideon, how would you have judged him? Would you say, mighty warrior? Because that's what the angel calls him. Heaven sees men and women differently than we do. And as a pastor, 97% of the time, I can look out and go, that one won't follow God. Joshua even did it. Have you ever heard Joshua's altar call at the end of the book? As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. You like to put that on your doors, but you haven't read what he said after it. He said, I've seen you people in the... You can't serve God. They said, oh, oh, yes, yes, we will serve the Lord. No, I, I know you, and you are not able to serve the Lord. A third time. Oh, no, 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 we, we will serve the Lord. He said, very well, you've pronounced it out of your own mouth, and you're guilty if you don't do it. That's how he spoke to them. God is able to look at people in the book of Hosea that are most characterized by a prostitute and unloved children. And he can tell them what they will become. Oh, that we could have the eyes of God. I guess since we often don't, we're just going to have to treat people like God has got good plans for them. Instead of like disposable commodities. Are you hearing me, saints? It's really easy for you to tell everything you need to know about this pastor. I preach about sin because I hate it and I don't want to live in it and I live in the same gutter you do. I preach about a critical eye because I've got one and I'm ready to tear it out. I preach to you what I would want preached to me. I'm going to tell you another little secret. I don't like it any more than you do. And I love it the same way that you do. Because although I've got a piece of gutter real estate, I am destined for the heavens. I don't even feel like my feet are on the ground anymore. I have set off in the direction of my God and I have faced more battles than I can count. And even when I was faithless, He has been faithful. Now I just love him and I owe him a debt. I love him enough to look beyond my failures and see what he can do with me. How about you? And can you extend that to our other brothers? My little wiener dog is in a back office right now. He made the mistake of sticking his head out of the covers at 4 o'clock this morning when I got up. Any of you got a dog you love? You people that are not dog people. He stuck his head out and he went. That was Weenie expressing discontentment that I had disturbed him. So I grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and I threw him in the truck. Weenie got to go to prayer meeting today. I named him Winston Churchill and had to rename him Weenie. This is so indicative of the way our master deals with us. He calls us a great warrior and we live like weenies. But he's dragging us to the meetings where our healing occurs. Because he hadn't given up on us. Winston Churchill said, A pessimist sees the difficulty in every opportunity. An optimist sees opportunity in every difficulty. I'd like to tell you that the church today has mostly thrown out the standard. So that they don't fall short of it. I want to hold up the standard and say, this is where I am. This is what the Bible says about me. And this is what I am going to do to bridge the difference in the mercy and grace of God. That's the way our forefathers did it. That's the way 
I do it, and it's worked out pretty good so far. In closing, I want to give you just a couple thoughts. In John 20, 24, you don't have to turn there. You can trust me. I'm not lying at the end of the message. Thomas said, I, I won't believe unless I touch the holes in his hands. How do people refer to Thomas? In 2028, Thomas is the first human being in all of history to say, my Lord and my God. History might rightly remember Abraham as a man that sacrificed his wife to another. It might rightly remember Abraham as a man who was born to an idolater. It might rightly remember Abraham as a man who spent 25 years before anything he said happened, happened. And if that's all you knew about Abraham, you wouldn't know what God said about him. That's my friend. And you wouldn't see the blessing that he's become to the world. If all you know about Thomas is that he's a doubter, then you miss out on what else he is. He's the first person in human history to look Jesus in the eye and say, my Lord and my God. Let me give my plug for India here. It'll be my seventh trip to India because I love them. And they work hard for the gospel. And whether I feel like it or don't feel like it, whether I have the money or don't have the money, I refuse to let them down. Thomas made it from Israel to India with the gospel. They tied each arm and each leg to a horse and pulled him into pieces. Thomas judged the blood of Jesus worth it. The blood of Jesus was worth seeing value in the men who murdered him. I judge the blood of Jesus worth it. The blood of Thomas worth it. And my blood worth it. Lord, deliver us from a critical eye. Let us see the potential in John 19:40 a man named Nicodemus shows up to get the body of Jesus. He wraps him with linen and spices. Goes on to say he's the same one that had come to Jesus at night before. How was Nicodemus remembered? The one that came to Jesus at night. Luke 23, 53 says that they took Jesus' body. No, not five. It is uh, Luke 23, 53. <coughs> then he took him down, wrapped him in a linen cloth, and placed him in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had been laid. I would say that there's a process in people's lives that you're not able to discern, and neither am I. We might see the finished work, but you can't see it as it's happening. When Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night, it's because his, his heart was hard like a rock. But a couple chapters later, when Nicodemus' peers are condemning Jesus, he says, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him? And they heaped insults on him. A couple chapters later, we see more movement. And what is happening is the hard rock of his heart is being struck by the pickaxe that is the word of God. So that by the end of Nicodemus' life, a place was hewn out for Jesus. Who could have known? What in the scripture would have given you that indication? But I suspect that Jesus knew. And that's why he took the time to talk to him in the first place. See, heaven knows the potential in the people. Since we don't, we're going to have to treat them all equally, aren't we? I want to close with you today. Turn with me to Philippians 4. Let's be in the fourth verse. 
Can we agree that I've not preached you under the table today? Can we agree that your butt ought to be able to handle 58 minutes? My lifetime average on our website is over an hour and 20 minutes. I'm doing better this year. The realization that I get to talk to you every week has finally set in on me after 20 years of ministry. And I'll only preach two messages each week instead of four in one service. Let Philippians 4, starting in the fourth verse and moving through the ninth, sink in on you this morning. As we read it, Matthew, would you come to the front? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy. Think about such things. Before we finish this, if that's all you did was think about them, you'd still be an enemy of God. You'd be standing in a gutter, staring at the stars, just like the Irish playwright. And you'd get an honorable mention as a man who knew what was right. And you'd be twice over damned for not doing it. The next verse is what puts meat on the bone. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. That's the difference between standing in the gutter staring at the stars and standing in a gutter aiming at the stars. Once we know something, friends, we have to live differently because of it. You want to be spiritually strong this year. It won't happen by you desiring it. You want to see the lost saved this year. It will not happen because you want it to be so. It will happen when you set out to walk differently, to do differently. I'm going to make a pledge to you that I'm going to do my very best to look at every situation and try to determine what the Lord is doing and encourage that. To not just tell you where we see sin and where we're failing, but also see what needs affirmation and draw it out. But make no mistake, when we stand before Jesus, we either did or did not put into practice what we learned. I wrote down on a piece of paper for a dear friend today. 39 years, some things had been there. How long do we want to live in a gutter? I say not one more day. Not one more day for this pastor. I'm not doing it. I've got my mark on the stars and I'm going to race towards them. Let's stand to our feet.